for once I find it very difficult to give you any particular text or any one verse as a text because I'm anxious this evening that we should consider together what the Bible has to tell us about the way in which God instructed the children of Israel through their leader Moses to build a tabernacle in which he would meet with them and in which they could worship him. We read at the beginning a section out of the 24th chapter of the book of Exodus, beginning at the 12th verse, which read like this, And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up unto me into the mount and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written, that thou mayest teach them. And Moses went up, you remember, and was there in the mount with God for forty days and forty nights. And during that time, God not only gave Moses the commandments on the tables of stone, but he also gave him detailed instructions as to how this tabernacle should be built and how it should be furnished and what they should do with it and in it. Now, I'm calling your attention to this as a part of a, a general consideration which has been occupying us now for a number of Sunday evenings. I believe I'm right in saying that this is the tenth Sunday evening when we are considering the same general theme, the general theme being the message of the Bible to men. Now, I believe that certain sections of the church, the Christian church, are observing today what they call Bible Sunday. Uh, I must confess that to me that that's rather a ludicrous term, as if there is only one Sunday which is Bible Sunday. Every Sunday is Bible Sunday, at least as far as I'm concerned. And every Sunday ought to be Bible Sunday. There is no meaning in the Christian church at all apart from the Bible. The business of preaching is to let this word speak, to expound it, to explicate it, to hold forth its message. I believe that what they have in mind in particular is that it's a day on which people are concerned and should be concerned about the propagation of the message of the Bible, the printing of the Bible and the distribution of the Bible because there are millions of people in the world who have never seen a Bible and who have never read a Bible. And it does behove all of us to do all we can to circulate the Bible, therefore, and to help in every way possible by material gifts and prayers and every other way to see that these masses of people who hitherto have never read the Word of God should be in a position to do so. But, you see, there's something much more important than that. It isn't enough even to have a Bible. There are many people who have Bibles in this country, but who've never read it. The mere possession of the book is nothing. It can be quite valueless. Indeed, it isn't enough even to read the Bible. We must understand the Bible. You remember the famous question which Philip the Evangelist put to that Ethiopian eunuch, who was going down from a great festival at Jerusalem and was sitting there in his chariot reading a portion of the prophecy of Isaiah. Philip joined him and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And the poor man had to admit and confess that he didn't. And Philip explained it to him. That's preaching. Preaching is the explanation of what the Bible says. Well, now then, we are doing it, I say, with this big idea and object in our minds. That the idea has become current that the Bible has got nothing to say today. That there may have been times in the past when the Bible and its message were useful and of value. But people today dismiss it. There's, of course, an old book like that, how can it have anything to say to us at the present time? Well, now, our whole series of discourses is just to show how utterly ignorant uh, such a view is, uh, to show how the Bible is the most up-to-date and contemporary book in the world, indeed to go further, and to show and to prove 
that nothing but the Bible really does speak to men's condition as it is at this very moment. Because the Bible is the most practical book in the world. It's not a book of poetry or a book of, of literature which you can pick up or not. It's not a book of fancy and of fantasy. It's a history book. It is a history of men and women living in this world and what happened to them. But it's more than that, of course. It is the history of mankind written from the standpoint of God. In other words, the Bible is concerned simply about life, about you and myself, and what's happening to us in this world, and what we can do about it. Well, now then, its fundamental proposition is this, that things are as they are in this world simply because men and women will not listen to the voice of God. That's the whole message of the Bible. It starts away back in the Garden of Eden, so we spent a number of Sunday nights in the third chapter of Genesis. Isn't this the whole cause of the trouble? God was speaking to men, and as long as men listened and obeyed, he was living in a state of paradise. Ah, yes, but the devil came and said, Hath God said? He raised a query as to what God had said as to whether it was right, whether it was true, whether it was the best thing for men, whether it was beneficial for men. And from the moment men accepted that question and began to think that the word of God was not for the best, from that moment men fell and chaos entered into the world. God, you see, punished men for his rebellion, for his arrogance. And men was turned out of the garden. And he's been out of it ever since. He was told he'd have to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. That there would be enmity between him and the seed of the serpent. And that his life would be involved in troubles and trials. Thorns and thistles and briars and diseases would come in. Not only that, men would quarrel amongst themselves and so on. And the whole history of the world has been just that ever since. But man is very slow to believe this. He's very reluctant to accept it. He's always convinced that he can put things right, and we've been tracing how he did so. We went to the time before the flood, which had become so terrible and appalling that God had to come down and destroy the ancient world. Then he gives them another start. But instead of walking in the light of God's counsel and knowledge, you remember they set themselves up and they said, let us build us a city. Let us make ourselves a great name and build a tower up to heaven. And God came down and again punished them. He scattered them, confused their language, and there they are scattered over the whole world with divisions. But then you remember we saw that God did something active. He took that man Abram and told him he was going to turn him into a nation. And we see in Abram, the other type of life which is possible. The rebellious life always leads to trouble. Well, now God sets up a man and says, look at this man. Here is a man, Abram, the friend of God, the greatest gentleman of all times. Look at him. And we discovered that his secret was that he always listened to God. He obeyed God. God called him out and said, come out from that land where you've been brought up and go into a land which I shall show thee. And Abram, we are told in that majestic phrase, went out, not knowing whether he went. But he went because it was God who had called him to go. And that was the whole secret of his life. Abram believed God. And he was justified. And he was blessed of God. Well, but you remember we have seen that then this nation that came out of the loins of Abram, as it were, God said to them, now you are my own special people, I've made you for myself. You are my people. But he said to them, if you are to enjoy the life that I would have you enjoy, if you are to be blessed of me, well then you've got to keep my rules. You've got to keep my commandments. 
so that last Sunday evening we were considering the message of the 20th chapter of this book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, the moral law which was given by God to his own peculiar people. God said to them, if you keep those, I'll bless you. They said they would keep them, that they could keep them. That was just another manifestation of the human, of human pride, of man's fatal self-confidence, because they fail completely to keep them. God, you see, thus constantly is returning to men, and he addresses men, and all along he keeps on saying the same thing, this is the way, walk ye in it. This is the way to peace and blessing and happiness, walk in it. Do this and I will bless you. And man's always confident that he can do it, but he's always failing to do it. That's the summary of biblical history. That is the summary indeed of the whole of human history. But thank God that isn't the, uh, the whole story, that isn't the end. Because you see all that just leaves us in a state of condemnation. The law was added, says the Apostle Paul, because of transgressions. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. The giving of the Ten Commandments didn't save the children of Israel. It was never meant to. It was given to them in order that they might see their sinfulness. That they might discover their weakness and their inability. That they might realize how terrible sin is. The exceeding sinfulness of sin. That's why the law was given. So if we are merely left with the law, I say we are condemned, we are doomed, and we are conscious of our failure. But thank God there's another note. Thank God when God called Moses up unto this mountain, he not only said unto him, I'm going to give you the tables of the law, he said, I want you to go down and build a tabernacle. Thank God for the tabernacle. It's the second element in biblical history. The word of God, the command of God, the law of God. Man's failure, but then the promise of God. And already, of course, we've been seeing it every Sunday night. We saw, didn't we, away back in the Garden of Eden, that when men had rebelled and had fallen in sin and was in misery, hiding himself behind the trees and afraid of the voice of God, God came down to him and said, Here's a promise. The seed of the woman shall bruise that serpent's head. The promise of salvation, even in the Garden of Eden. And we have seen how God has continued to do this. When he destroyed the world, he saved the eight people in the ark. When he scatters the nation, he forms his new nation. Ever I say, God when he thus condemns, also holds out a promise. And it is that very thing that we have here in this matter that we are considering tonight. God called Moses up unto the mountain, I say, and he gave him great instructions with regard to the building of a tabernacle, and later on similar instructions with regard to the building of a temple. Now, anybody who's ever read the Old Testament at all uh, must have discovered that in this Old Testament, and indeed in the New, there is a great deal of reference to this tabernacle. Have you ever read through the book of Exodus? Have you ever read through the book of Leviticus? Have you read these ancient books? And have you been puzzled as to what all this is about, about these different chambers in this tabernacle and these different veils and curtains and these uh, altars that had to be built and the tables and bread put on tables and lamps and candles and lights and an ark of the covenant and cherubim and mercy seat and so on and all the details about the high priest and the priest and about burnt offerings and sacrifice and meal offerings and so on. And have you said, how utterly boring. What has all this got to do with me? I'm not interested in it all. And you've turned over and you've gone to the Psalms or rushed to the New Testament. Have you done that? 
Have you felt that all this about the tabernacle and the temple has got nothing to say to you? Well, my dear friend, if you have, you've missed something which is very wonderful and very glorious. This is God speaking still and speaking in love and speaking in mercy and speaking in redemption. That's why all this detail is given. That's why you get the references to it in the New Testament. What is the tabernacle? The tabernacle is nothing but a great and a glorious prophecy concerning the coming of the Son of God into this world. It was a picture of all that in those dim, distant centuries, 1,400 years before he came. It was God speaking, God promising deliverance, God assuring the people that the Savior, the Messiah, was going to come. And therefore it is of vital importance that we should understand something of the great and vital message of the tabernacle, the temple, if you like, of God. Now, fortunately again for us, if we find it almost impossible to understand what we are reading in these Old Testament books, we can turn to the New Testament and it's all put very plainly before us. You've seen it already in the reading in the epistle to the Hebrews in those chapters 8 and 9 and you'll find it elsewhere. There you're given the spiritual meaning, a key to the understanding of all this mass of detail. Very well then, let me just extract the big principles this evening. All along in these discourses we've been concerned about the big principles. There are great details here, and we could spend months and years probably working through it all. All I'm concerned to do is this. We are going on until Christmas. We are working up to the reminder of that great and climactic event. And all I'm anxious to do is that God has been leading up to this throughout the centuries. That from the moment men fell, God came in and said, That's your trouble. It's because you've done that. And you'll never deliver yourself, but I'll deliver you. And what can be more interesting and fascinating than to notice the ways in which God has done that? Well, now let's see what he's saying here. What is God speaking to us through this tabernacle? Well, isn't it clear and obvious that the first thing he says is this. That he wants to come and does indeed come. To dwell with men. That's the meaning of the tabernacle. In that holiest of all in the tabernacle, God's presence dwelt. Oh, read up the details for yourselves. There in that holiest of all into which the high priest alone was allowed to enter only once a year, not without blood, was the Shekinah glory. The glory of God dwelt between the cherubims on the mercy seat. In other words, God's presence. Now that is the ultimate object of the tabernacle, God coming down, as it were, amongst his people. Well, this, of course, is the whole heart of the gospel. It's the essence of the Christian message. That God, in spite of us, in spite of our rebellion and our folly and our sin and our failure, has not turned his back upon us. Here he is, you see, he's just given the law to the children of Israel, and they have said in their blindness and ignorance, we will keep it. And then I say the miserable failure. But God doesn't forsake them, God doesn't turn his back upon them. God says to Moses, I'm going to come down to dwell amongst these people. God says, in effect, the only way whereby these people can live a happy and an harmonious life is that I should be amongst them and that they should dwell with me and I with them and that they should commune with me and be in touch with me. Man's life in this world is doomed to be misery unless... He is blessed of God. 
That's our fundamental proposition all along. And my dear friends, doesn't the modern world prove this? The world now, and especially during this century, has been trying to live without God. It's turned its back upon him. It's ridiculed him and all the teaching concerning him. Men were absolutely convinced, they're still trying to persuade themselves, that they can live a happy life without God altogether. And are they not proving themselves tonight that the whole thing is utterly impossible? As the still sad music of humanity been ever more distinct than it is this evening? Don't you hear the groaning? Stop for a minute in the rush and the hubbub of London. Put your newspapers down for a second and just stand still and listen. And you hear the groaning of the human race. Look behind the paint and the powder which can be put on so easily. Look behind it and see the haggard, drawn face. Take away the drugs and the stimulants. See the exhaustion, the tiredness, the weariness. Suddenly stop all the pleasure-seeking and look at the boredom and the wretchedness and the unhappiness of men and women. That's what it is. It always has been. It always will be. Man cannot be happy without God. He's been trying it throughout the centuries. But it's always failed. And it's still failing. It doesn't matter how sophisticated we are. It doesn't matter how advanced and developed we may be. It doesn't matter how perfectly we've developed our scientific inventions. Man cannot be happy without God. He was made for God. And his heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. And this is the marvel and the wonder of it all. The thing that ought to break us down and make us weep for joy at this moment. That though in our folly we've all done that, God, I say, comes down amongst us, comes to seek us, comes to dwell amongst us. He did it in the tabernacle. They didn't deserve it. They deserved everything else. They failed him constantly. But he always comes down. There they were as slaves in Egypt. Had they been left to themselves, they would never have come out. They would have been destroyed completely. You remember the scheme of Pharaoh and his people, how every child born to a Hebrew was to be killed at birth, and so on and so forth. And there they would have been destroyed, but God came down and chose Moses and brought them out mightily. It's always God delivering them. And even after he's delivered them and they've spurned the vice divine and have failed to keep his commandments, he says again, I'll come down and dwell amongst you. I'll come into the tabernacle. My presence shall be with you and shall go with you. Oh, this is the God whom I'm privileged to preach to you. The God whose heart is eternal love. The God of mercy and of compassion and of great kindness. We preach again as we do on Sunday mornings the exceeding riches of the grace of God that comes to men who deserves nothing but punishment and retribution and blasting and comes and offers his very self to him. That's the great message of the tabernacle. You see, the tabernacle as a whole represents and is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when the Apostle John, you remember, comes to write his gospel, he puts it like this in his prologue. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, which means, and tabernacled among us. The same idea, you see, the tabernacle. He tabernacled among us in the flesh, according to the seed of David, the seed of Abraham also. Here, then, I say, is the first great message. 
God, the infinite, eternal, absolute God, who dwelleth in a light that no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen at any time, the holy, eternal God. Because of his pity and his mercy and his compassion, he even comes down into the world and amongst men in order to deliver them. That's the message of Christianity. When men could do nothing, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. That's the whole message. God coming down, God himself coming down in the person of the Son, the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity. Nothing less than that. The Shekinah glory was an adumbration, a suggestion, a prophecy, but it's actually happened. That's the message. So that you and I tonight, you see, are not left simply to ourselves. We are living in a world in which the statesmen are failing. We are living in a world in which the philosophers have become almost ludicrous because they don't know where they are and all their strange prophecies have been falsified. We are living in a world in which the poets and the musicians, and none of them are helping us. They don't know where they are. They're like men groping in the dark at noonday. But thank God... Here is a message which comes and tells us that though man is defeated and hopeless and helpless, God himself comes down and lives in this world, takes unto him human nature, shares the life of common humanity, lives with the very rebels who have turned their backs upon him in order to rescue them and to redeem them. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. All right, there's the first great message of the tabernacle, but come, there's another great message here. God in the tabernacle and in the teaching concerning it is not only telling us of his coming to dwell amongst men. Fortunately for us, he goes on to give us the second thing which is absolutely essential. In the tabernacle, he teaches us also as to how we can get into touch with him. If you were suffering from some terrible and horrible disease which was quite incurable, and for which all the physicians and the surgeons in this country could do nothing, and if you suddenly heard that a man in some other country had discovered the cure, and that this wonderful man was going to pay a visit to this country. Do you know what you'd do at once? You'd say, now what can I do in order to get at that man? How can I be introduced to him? How can I make my way to him? Is there somebody who knows him? What are the channels that I must follow? I must see him. I must get into touch with him. Isn't it? Of course. It's exactly the same here. God comes down to dwell with men to bless and to deliver, ah, then the thing I want to know is this, how can I get into touch with him? How can I speak to him? How can I have communion with him? How can I go with my broken heart to him? How can I take my petitions to him? How can I take my burdens and leave them with him? How can I find him? I believe he's there. How do I get in? There he is in the holiest of all, with a brightness and a glory that alarm me and terrify me because I'm sinful. How can I get in? That's the question. And in the teaching concerning the tabernacle, God answers the question. What is the teaching? Well, I'll divide it up into two sections. First of all, general, second, particular. By the general, I mean this. God lays it down at once. And beyond any doubt or question, that he has got to be approached in the way that he lays down. In the way, if you like, in which he dictates. Let me prove my case to you. Take these chapters of this book of Exodus from chapter 24 to the end, chapter 40. Then go on to the book of Numbers and go on to the book of Leviticus. 
Have you ever read them all? Have you gone through? Or have you given up in despair? All the details, all the most extraordinary details about how the tabernacle was to be built, its measurements down to the smallest detail, the various wood, the type of wood that was to be used, the gold and the silver, all these things, the colors, some purple, some red, and so on. And you say, what on earth is the point of all this? What's this got to do with me? And here are all these details. You can't get away from them. You've got to go on. Every single detail, almost every hook and eye, as it were, every slot and everything that fits into it, it's all here down to the smallest detail with nothing omitted. And then when you've gone through all that, you find that God chooses a particular man to be a high priest. And then he gives it all in detail as to how he's to be clothed and what's to be done to him. And then the priests and the ones who are to help the priests and who those who are to carry the ark and to carry the tabernacle all here in the minutest detail. And then you come on to all those offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings, meal offerings, and the various sacrifices and the festivals and all these things. In the most amazing detail. And then you remember after God had said all this to Moses up on that mountain when he was there for the forty days and forty nights. As Moses was beginning to descend the mountain and to go back to the people, God, as it were, calls after him and says, See that thou make all things according to the pattern shown unto thee on the mount. Not a detail was to be omitted or to be missed, or to be trifled with or to be modified. It was to be done exactly as God had dictated. Everything and every detail about the tabernacle itself and the service of the tabernacle. What's it mean? I've already answered the question. God is to be approached in his way only. He announces that he's going to come down to dwell with men. Where? In that holiest of all. Well, very well then, some people say, we can all rush in whenever we like. And as we like, you try it and see what will happen to you. Who can dwell with the burning fire? Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Isaiah had but a vision of him and he fell down. And he said, Woe is unto me, for I am a man with unclean lips. These people of Israel who merely saw the outskirts, as it were, the mere hem of the garment of God, they're blazing on top of the mount. They quaked with fear and trembling, and they said, Speak you unto us, Moses. Don't let God speak, it's too terrible. And yet foolish people say that God can be approached quite easily, no difficulty at all. They say all this is unnecessary. They say if God's God and if God is a God of love as you say he is, well then surely all I've got to do is when I'm in trouble I turn to God in prayer and all will be well with me. But you've tried that, haven't you? And it doesn't work, does it? Of course it doesn't. And it never will. People say if you want to find God, all you do is to sit on a comfortable chair and relax and begin to listen and he'll speak to you. The Bible doesn't say that. If it were just that, you know, you wouldn't need all these long chapters in Exodus and in Leviticus. It would be much simpler, wouldn't it? Indeed, you know, if you accept men's ideas about God and how God is to be approached, you wouldn't need much of a Bible at all. It would be so simple. Let go, let God. Just rush to God and all is well. No trouble at all. But there's all these, there are all these details. And the Son of God having to come down on Christmas Day. And a cross and a grave and a resurrection. What's it all about? It's just about this. That that holy and eternal God says that he's to be approached in his way, not in yours and mine. 
And he lays down the instructions in the minutest detail. There is only one way to God. It's the way that he himself has appointed. Bible Sunday. Yes, this is the message of the Bible on Bible Sunday. That God is only to be known if we approach him in the way that he himself has indicated. It is he who appoints the dimensions of the tabernacle and all its fittings and all its furniture and all its ceremonial. He calls the high priest Aaron, nobody else, certain men called Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. You'll find in the book of Numbers they objected to this. They said, who are these men, Moses and Aaron, who say that they alone can approach God? They're no better than we are. And these three were very able men. They say, we don't agree with this. We can go into the presence of God. We can take incense as well as Aaron, the rebellion of Korah. Do you remember what happened to them? They were all destroyed and all who agreed with them simply vanished, were swallowed up by the earth. God punished them. But for a hundred years and more, modern man with all his cleverness and his ability has been criticizing the Bible. He's dismissed his Old Testament, especially this part of it. He's queried the need of atonement. He's ridiculed miracles. He's made a new Bible. And it's so much smaller than this, isn't it? It's so convenient you can put it in your waistcoat pocket almost. He's eliminated things out of it. All this, he says, is unnecessary. It's all so simple. Live a good life and God will bless you. But God doesn't seem to be blessing us, does he? With our new God and our new Jesus, look at our world. We don't seem to know him and we are certainly not being blessed by him. And my friends, we never will be until we come back to God's way. You know nothing about God tonight and I know nothing about God except what I've got in this book. I have no other authority. I have no other sanction. I have nothing else that I can prove. I know nothing about God except what God has been pleased to reveal concerning himself. And I have that in this book. And I come to it on bended knee. I come to it as a little child. I, in my ignorance, know nothing. I want it to tell me. And it tells me. That's why he dictated all the details. It is the only way whereby men can come unto God. There is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. This is the only way. Very well, there it is in general. What is it in detail? Let me just summarize it. Here are the particulars. Oh, I'm not going to take you through all the details of the tabernacle. There's no need to. But I must start at the beginning, mustn't I? As you entered into that tabernacle, do you know the first thing you met? You met an altar, which is called the altar of burnt offering, or the brazen altar, an altar of brass. And on this, animals were to be sacrificed. And the blood was to be kept and collected. The brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice. What's it mean? At the very entrance. Oh, it's just God's way of saying that if we really want to know him and to get into his presence, we must start by realizing that we are sinners. That sin is a terrible reality. And that that holy God cannot play fast and loose with sin. My friend, you will never arrive at God and never know him until you start by facing the fact of sin. That you are a sinner. The Apostle Paul realized this, you see, because he reminded the elders of the church at Ephesus when he said farewell to them, that when he had been amongst them, he preached two things. First, the repentance that is toward God. Secondly, the faith that is toward the Lord Jesus Christ. He started with repentance, and you and I must. Of course, we don't like this today. We want Jesus as a friend or as a helper. We want some kind of psychological treatment. We want somebody who will deliver us out of our troubles. My dear friend, before that happens to you, you've got to realize that you're a sinner. 
Repentance must come first. You can't get into the holiest of all without passing the brazen altar. Animals must be sacrificed. Sin must be put on them and they must be killed. Their bodies dealt with and the blood taken. The brazen altar, the condemnation of sin, the condemnation of the sinner. Man in sin has got to realize that he's a fool. He's under the wrath of God and that he's lost unless atonement is made for him. That's at the very beginning. Have you sometimes wondered why your prayers are not answered? I wonder whether the explanation is this. That you simply rushed into the presence of God to ask him to help you in your need. Without confessing your sins and acknowledging that you only were able to speak to him because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Have you known that moment of anguish when a loved one was desperately ill and down you went on your knees you hadn't prayed for years. You prayed and you said, God didn't answer me. I don't believe in your God. He's not a God of love or he wouldn't have left me. But my dear friend, you are not approaching him in the right way. You and I, all of us in sin, need to be taught how God is to be approached. And you must go past the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice, the place where sin is exposed and condemned. You cannot get in without going past that. You must start there. And then having done that, you go on, you see you need cleansing. And the next thing you meet in this tabernacle is a laver, a sort of bowl with pure water in it, in which the priests had to wash their hands and cleanse themselves. Oh, the need of cleansing. For God is holy and pure. And there is no kind of compromise possible between purity and impurity and holiness and sin and light and darkness. Whosoever enters into the presence of God, as I've said, needs clean hands and a pure heart. I not only need my sins forgiven, I need a new nature, I need a holy nature, I need to be sanctified. And the laver of water reminds me of that. It's there in the old tabernacle, and it's still equally true, and God provides it. This is the way to be cleansed, this word. The Lord Jesus Christ prayed for his own at the end, and he said, Father, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Here we find how to be sanctified, to be clean, to be made pure, to be fit to be in the presence of God. And when you feel you're unclean, it makes you clean. And what else do we need? Well, we need strength and power. We need light and help and unction, and it's there for us. God gave Moses instructions how to build a most wonderful lamp with oil flowing into it perpetually, the picture of the Holy Spirit, and then a table with certain loaves upon it. What's that? The life we receive from Christ, the food for the soul, the sustenance, the thing that builds us up and makes us powerful to go into the presence of God. The light, the life, the strength, the unction, the ability, the power. And what else? Well, we are still with a veil in front of us. And we know that God's presence, that Shekinah glory, is the other side of that veil. How can we get in there? All the priests were allowed so far, but there only one is allowed. The high priest only is allowed in there, that but once a year, not without blood. He went in once a year bearing blood with him to offer for the sins of the people. And there he took it to the mercy seat and God said he was satisfied, atonement was made. And the high priest went out announcing that the very fact that he was still alive and came out from the presence of God was proof in and of itself that God had pardoned and forgiven and their sins were all covered. And you and I are conscious of the need of this, are we not? 
How can I venture into the presence of God? I feel small. I feel so finite. I am sinful. I am unworthy. I need some spokesman. I need someone to take my prayers and send them on. I need a holy incense. I need someone who can stand before God on my behalf. I've reminded you already that God chose the high priest, not men. He chose Aaron and nobody else. And he has chosen again an infinitely greater. Seeing therefore, says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, that we have a great high priest that has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast the confession and more. Let us draw near unto the throne of grace. I'm not left alone. There is a great high priest representing me. He's entered in bearing what? Not the blood of bulls and of goats or the ashes of an heifer. But his own blood. That's the Christian message. That into this world of sin and shame and failure and degradation, God has sent his own son. Why? In order to make it possible for you and for me to enter into the presence of God. Christ has entered into the heavenly tabernacle of which the earthly one was but a shadow. And he has purified the heavenly places with his own blood. He has taken his blood to God's mercy seat. And God has there said he's satisfied. Do you remember what we were told about that mercy seat? It was this. There was an ark with the Ten Commandments inside it. And then gold over that. And then these cherubim. And then the presence of God. He came and met men there. You see how? Over the Ten Commandments. God's love and God's forgiveness are absolutely just. God doesn't set aside his Ten Commandments. God demands that they should be fulfilled. And they have been fulfilled in Christ. So God says, I'll forgive you, I'll receive you. You've honored the law in my Son. The mercy seat is the place where law and grace meet together. God is satisfied by the life, by the death, by the resurrection, by the blood of Christ. And there in Christ, who is himself the mercy seat, the propitiatory, God can be met this evening. And as I said at the beginning, I say at the end, the one thing every man and woman in this world needs is to know God. If you know God and are admitted into God's presence, he will bless you. He's promised it. He's always done it. Read the lives of the saints of the Old Testament. Read the lives of the apostles. Read the lives of the saints in the church throughout the centuries. And you'll find that these men testify together that he does bless. He does hold you when you need him. He does give you health and strength and power. And if for some reason he decides to take them from you, he doesn't take his joy from you. He'll be with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He will bless you. To know God is the supreme blessing. If you know God, you have everything. And God can be known, but he can only be known through Jesus Christ and him crucified. You are not asked to try the impossible. It's no use going out and saying, I'm going to try to live a better life so that I may go into the presence of God. You'll never do it. Give it up now. It's hopeless. You've got nothing to do but to admit way back at the beginning at the brazen altar 
that it's your sin and your sin alone that stands between you and God and the blessing of God. Confess it, admit it, repent, acknowledge it, give up defending yourself. Say, I deserve nothing but hell. I don't deserve the smile of God. I'm such a vile, unworthy creature. I've no claim upon him at all. Say that, admit it. Cast yourself into your case unreservedly and utterly upon his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he has taken the burden of your sins upon him, that he has died for them, shed his blood for them, has offered the blood to God who has accepted it, and that in him God forgives you none. All your sins forgiven none. Blotted out as a thick cloud. God will receive you. God will smile upon you. You will know God. And you will be blessed of God. And even in this terrifying world of 1955, you will know a peace of God that passeth all understanding. Thank God for the way he has spoken unto us through the tabernacle. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.